people think I'm damaged goods. I'm worried about losing my job. Will I ever get a transplant? I want to see my children graduate from college. How can I afford this? I don't want to be a burden. I'm afraid. I'm overwhelmed with information. Sometimes I wonder if I'll ever fall in love and get married. I just want to play with my friends. You're listening to Kidney Talk, streaming health, happiness, and hope to the renal community with your hosts, Lori Hartwell and Stephen First. Well, welcome to another episode of Kidney Talk. Today, we have a special guest. His name is Bill Cohn, and I was really intrigued to learn that he learned he had kidney failure in 1956 when he was 18. So we're going to hear his incredible story, and I can't wait to hear it. So welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you, Lori. Well, tell us a little bit. At 18 years old, in 1956, you learned you had kidney disease. Uh, yes, my uh, hit, uh, polycystic kidney is, uh, is a disease that I have. It's been in our family. As you know, it's hereditary, and it uh, caused the death of nearly everyone in my mother's family. Wow. And uh, in our particular case, uh, at this date anyway, I'm the eldest of five siblings. I'm the fourth one to be transplanted. I also have a son who's been transplanted and a daughter who is nearing kidney failure. Wow. So at 18, you found out you had PKD. When did you first experience symptoms? I experienced my first symptoms um, at age 26 while I was in the uh, training academy for my second fire department. And what were the symptoms? Well, I just got weak. You know, in those training academies, they really work you fairly hard, and there are heavy, heavy ladders that put a lot of stress on the back. And with polycystic kidneys, they're so large that I started feeling pressure. And, uh, you know, polycystic kidneys, as you're probably more aware than I am, the the symptoms move pretty slowly. And uh, uh, I did know at that time that actually I was starting to have some failure. So when did you actually have to start dialysis? I started dialysis in 1999. Um, I just continued to get weaker and weaker and uh, finally went to a physician uh, whose sweet little nurse asked me where I got my dialysis, and that was the first, uh, the first shock that the time uh-oh, has arrived. Uh-oh, the time is here. You knew it was coming. And, yeah. well, and what's interesting is you're very active. I mean, you're a fireman, and you were moonlighting as a construction expert in your free time. I mean, that just seems like an amazing schedule to have to keep up when you have kidney disease. Well, I've worked, Laurie, from a very, very young age, and the mentality kind of sets in, and it's, it's, you know, work has always been a big part of my life. I'm better off working than I am not working. Right. Too much free time is dangerous for somebody who has an active mind, huh? That's correct. (laughs) So you learned you had kidney disease, and which treatment option did you choose? Well, originally, you know, when, when I went to the to this sweet little nurse and she told me I needed dialysis, I had no choice but to get hemo. Right. You were that far gone. I was. Were. And were you working during this time that you were feeling so horrible? I had retired. I retired in 1991, and so I'm eight years post-retired. So I was still working in the construction business, though. Now, so you went on PD, and did that go smoothly, or did you want to figure out how to get to another treatment to have more control? Well, after I was on hemo and got situated and my fistula matured a little bit, then I wanted to go on PD just simply for the freedom. Right. And um, 
You know, sometimes freedom's not exactly a good thing. Uh, <laughs> I was teaching uh, construction skills to inmates at the time, and we were doing historical restoration for the U.S. Forest Service in the process. And some of the work was in a wilderness area. And, you know, it's like with the young people who feel so well, they for, just won't take their meds. Right. Uh, I was in that same sort of a mentality in that I felt strong again and vigorous. And I was doing my exchanges with a, my full bag nailed to a tree. And I'd sit under the tree and had the empty bag downhill from me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's no water in a wilderness area, and the Perel doesn't really clean it up well enough. And so because of my cavalier sort of an attitude about it all, I ended up with decayed forest products in my peritoneum. Wow. And I mean, when I would go camping when I was on peritoneal, I always did it in the car. I would always do the exchange in the car. And you would just do it outside in the wilderness? There was no, there was no car. There was no car. There no. was no type of a contained environment. Nothing. Wow. So when you get decayed uh, tree debris, I mean, <laughs> how do they treat that? Well, they, they, of course, you're hospitalized. I was hospitalized overnight. And uh, my physician, who's a man that I really, really care for, and I, I still uh, volunteer for him, uh, said, look, your PD days are over. You have to go on hemo. Wow, just because of the tree hanging peritoneal episode, or was this going on and on for a while? Well, I don't, you know, there's no way of knowing how long it was going on, but I suspect not very long just because of the fact that instantly I was in the hospital. I went from feeling good to feeling lousy. And then, so you started back on hemo. Now, how did you go about getting on the transplant list? What happened, and how did you get successfully transplanted? Well, my, my GFR, of course, was down to like 13. And, uh, of course, the, the threshold for dialysis, being a dialysis patient is 20, 21 in there somewhere. And so I was, I was eligible right at that particular time. I went on hemo, which was a little bit difficult for me because I, um, you know, when you work all the time, I was kind of a big meat and potatoes sort of a guy. And, of course, those days are over. Right. And you can have meat, but no potatoes. No. Well, yeah. <laughs> you can have them if you boil them till there's no taste to them. But. I know. They're like baby mush. <laughs> You're right. Uh, and so, you know, it's hard to work when you get a half a cup of this and a half a cup of that. And, and uh, But I continued on, and it was, you know, when I really originally failed, I was right in the middle of a huge kitchen remodel, right down to the bare studs. And uh, that had to be finished. Mm -hmm. So it was a real struggle. And you finished it. I did. You know what? That's really interesting because people ask me, well, Laura, you push yourself and push yourself. And I'm like, you know, part of me pushing myself is what keeps me going. At the same time, it's a kind of a happy balance. You don't want to push yourself too much where you make yourself sick. But when you're in the hospital and you know you have things to do, it makes you recover quicker because you have things you need to do. I think we're a lot alike, Lori. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm sitting there. You know, I'm in the hospital, and I sit there, and it's like it's quiet. There's no phone calls. You know, you don't like anything on TV. And if I had a notepad and paper, I start thinking about all the things I need to do. And, you know, it's such a blessing to have so much to do because if you don't have anything to do, why would you want to fight so hard to keep yourself healthy? And I think that's one of the messages that patients need to know is they got to stay busy. I agree because you know when you when you uh, 
when you're an old man like me, you can't just sit in a chair. Right. You go downhill really quickly, right. both physically and mentally. So when you were on dialysis, what did you do to stay busy? Well, I was teaching these inmates in the mountains. I did that for 13 years, all told. And we worked the year round in the, at about the 7,000-foot level. We took a building that the Forest Service, I work for the archaeologist, and uh, he told me, take a look at this building. We either have to fix it or I have to burn it because it's a health hazard. And it was a, a, across the road from Mountain High Ski Resort, and it's about a block long, a huge, huge, beautiful building, and I just couldn't bear to hear that they're going to burn it. Burn it, yes. And so I told him that we could fix it if I got some help, and that was my start with these inmates, which um, the inmate crew was basically a fire crew. You may have seen them around in the big red trucks that says Cal Fire Fire Crew. And they were a wonderful group of people. And I kept telling my wife, you know, every single day I go to work is like going to the circus. It's just so much fun. (laughs) Can you explain who the inmates are? Well, the inmates were folks who had become trusted within the system, but there were all sorts of levels of, of their little difficulties. There were no capital people, no kidnappers, no rapists, those kind of things. But there were just all other sorts of folks. They weren't just people that were back pay, back on their alimony or things like that. These are people who had serious difficulties. And, you know, I learned early on, my mother was basically brought up in the Amish atmosphere, and I learned early on in my life about love, honor, and respect. And that's how I treated them. And it worked so well for me. And you got to teach them all these different skills that, you know, once they paid their debt, they could go out and apply, which is amazing. I mean, I think that's just where all of our money should go. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. You know, I have, I only really keep in touch with one inmate now, and he was a fairly serious heroin addict, and he had lost his family, his wife, his children, his house, his cars. And I had kind of a unique situation there where I could, uh, uh, with the permission of this fire captain who oversaw them, I could take them up the road for a long walk and talk. And I must have walked 100 miles with this young man and convinced him, you know, that he had the ability to do better. And, well, today, he, uh, I got him a job, first off, um, working in uh, the aircraft industry as a painter, and he went on to become the painting foreman. And currently, he works in a national, uh, nationwide uh, pipeline company painting. And he has a new wife, a new kid. He has a, a vacation home in Arkansas on a lake. He has a fifth wheel. He's been very successful. And I basically have taken the spot occupied by his father. And so I'm his daddy these yes. days. And uh, it's just, um, it, that's a wonderful thing. And, and I get calls from him on my birthday and Christmas and all the holidays. And it's just a wonderful, warming thing. Isn't it amazing when you feel like you can impact somebody's life like that? And, you know, we all have something to teach and something to give. And sometimes I encounter people who have kidney disease or on dialysis, and they're like, oh, well, I can't help anybody. I need help. And that's really a recipe for disaster because we always have something that we can teach other people or give back to society. And 
you know, I think that that's one of the most important things that keep us going for so long with an illness for so long. I, I totally agree. You know, my, uh, my history with hemodialysis really taught me a lot because I saw people who didn't participate in their own medical care. They had no idea about the drugs. They had no idea about their labs. They would just basically sit in the chair, stick out their arm, and say, fix me. And then they go home and do all of the too much liquids, all the wrong kind of foods and things. I swore that was never going to happen to me. I know my labs. I still know my labs. And I know my meds. And I know that if I get out of line to look at that next lab, and I can prove what I did wrong. You can remember that little PD bag hanging on the tree, right? That's a <laughs> constant reminder that, wait, if I mess up, I pay the price. That's correct. So tell us a little bit about how you know your transplant went and how you got the news you were going to get one. Well, I didn't know I was going to get one first. That was the biggest worry. But I had siblings who had received a uh, transplant, and they were all doing well. And so I knew that maybe the time was right and I could, uh, it would happen for me. And I had one false alarm, but never had to leave home. The second time I went, um, I, uh, I was very encouraged when I got to the, uh, to the hospital because I learned kind of by listening carefully that I was the only one there. And I, the reason I was the only one there is I had my PRA always ran between 90 and 100%. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... When I got this thing, it was really, really wonderful. Mm -hmm. And then I had heard uh, through, again, listening to one of the the, uh, nurses post-transplant, I was the luckiest guy in the world because I had a six antigen match. Yes. And what's your creatinine today? 1.1. 1.1. You know, I got called, um, you know, I had my fourth transplant a year ago or a little, almost two years ago. But my third transplant was a, you know, I had 100% antibodies, and I got a six antigen match, and that kidney lasted me for 20 years, and it's just amazing. You get the call, you're afraid, but, you know, transplantation's pretty routine now, and the success rate's very high. So how long have you been transplanted? I've been transplanted eight years, and all pretty much symptom-free. The first month and a half, I think everyone has difficulties, and and I have this wonderful support group with a wife and a church and things like that. But after that initial little impact to my body, I, I have really done well. So what do you do today to make sure you don't, you know, impact your kidney in any way? Well, I, I try and get a lot of rest. I, I sleep. I try to sleep nine hours every single night, and uh, I... A long time ago, established a kind of a policy. I absolutely will not be around people who are negative, even if they're complaining about the weather. I don't want to hear it. Right. You know, I came within two weeks of looking at the wrong side of the grass, so I don't care what the weather is. (laughs) I know. You know, like, I don't want to hear it's cold in Southern California. (laughs) Come on, try uh, going to New York or something like that. Then you really know what it's cold. And give us an update on your family. Now, you mentioned at the beginning of the show uh, you know, a lot of your family members have been having transplants or needed transplant. And how does that, I mean, it's almost your, your family environment is a support group. Well, that's true. However, I, uh, my family's all a very, very private group. They hold their feelings very close, kind of how my mother was. And uh, we've not really shared a great deal of things pre-transplant. For some reason, we just don't do it. Uh, post-transplant, we all brag about our creatinine and those kind of things. Do you share medications? Um, <laughs> no. 
<laughs> like, hey, I'm out of some some Cellcept. Can I borrow some of yours? I mean, I think that would be great, you know, if you could swap medication when you need to. <laughs> well, I, I'm very fortunate in that I can order my meds online. Mm-hmm. Um, because I I do teach at a at a local major hospital. I'm in there frequently. I can get my meds frequently. I have to order them just like anybody else. But the fact that you're in there, I can pick them up if I run close or tight or something. Never had a medicine problem at all. Well, when thinking that you were diagnosed when you were 18 years old, and I don't want to disclose how old you are today, but you look <laughs> fantastic. Well, thank you. I would never know that you had kidney disease. Well, thank you. I, I work pretty hard at, at staying healthy. And just to kind of let your listeners know, I'm 75 years old. You're 75 years old. Right. Wow. And uh, it's, I really believe in a, a strong mental outlook about this whole thing. That's one of the reasons that I decided to teach when asked was that when I first went into this, I was in a medical situation where I wasn't getting any information. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I were terrified because we didn't really know what to expect. Right. You know, like every other patient, uh, the, the people that I see, I don't call them patients, they're my friends, uh, they're all frightened about the medicines. They're more concerned about the medicines than the surgery itself. Right. And it, it's too bad. And mm-hmm. I work hard to... Educate them that, you know, the medicines are manageable. And, you know, I take a lot of transplant meds a day because I, you know, my fourth transplant... I was, again, 100% antibody, so I had to go through a desensitization protocol Mm -hmm. to get transplanted. And, you know, I take a little bit more meds, but, you know, I'm too busy to think about the side effects. And I make sure I eat with them and, you know, little tricks you do. And some days I get a little nauseous or something because I do take a little bit. But, you know, I can't let that take over my life. And they're a blessing because we wouldn't be here without a transplantation or dialysis. So we have to be grateful for both options. Absolutely. You know, and I'm in a situation now here being eight years out. I just recently, I've had some difficulty with uh, my platelets because of the uh, cell sept. And that re- has been reduced by 25% in the last three months. My blood pressure, which also... Uh, contributes to a skin cancer problem that most of us have has been reduced by 50%. So I am, um, I'm on the downward trend here. And I have a, a brother and a sister who've both been totally taken off from Cellcept. Well, you know, it's just different meds that are different, you know, that react differently for people. And luckily that uh, we have a lot of sunscreen products, different things we can use to protect ourselves because an ounce of prevention is worth so much. And so thank you, Bill. I appreciate you, you know, sharing your story because you're just an inspiration to everybody and to let everybody know that not to give up and stay busy and help others no matter what your age is. (laughs) Thank you, Lori. Thanks for having me. I really have enjoyed it. We can control our own destiny. We can take charge of our health and ask questions about our medical options. We can form partnerships with our health care team. We can take steps towards self-improvement. We can be sensitive to the impact of our disease on our family. We can sing, dance, laugh, and enjoy our lives. We can appreciate today and look forward to tomorrow. We can help and support our fellow patients. We can pursue our hopes and dreams. We can make a difference. 